G'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I have a huge announcement to make. Now as you all know, I've been working on my brand new book called Investing in the US, The Ultimate Guide to US Real Estate. And I am super pumped to announce that it is now live on my website. It is live on Amazon. So please jump over to readgoosens.com forward slash books and grab a copy today. All proceeds from the sale of this book goes to charity. So remember to jump over to read goosens.com forward slash books and get your hands on one today. Now back into the show. My advice to people that are entering the market that are planning to expand, the biggest thing you can do is, is do what you say you're going to do. Do not reach. I know this is maybe a sensitive topic, but it's, it's just if you execute the first time and you do what you say you're going to do, it's just the floodgates do open. Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S. podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reed Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the U.S., how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with James Young. James is originally from Austin, Texas, and he's been a multifamily investment broker with Newmark Knight Frank, formerly ARA, since 2010, specializing in value-add non-institutional assets. Since 2010, James has been involved in over 200 transactions representing over a billion dollars in multifamily real estate in Central Texas. James was honored with Newmark's 2016 and 2017 Rising Star Top Performer Award. James also graduated with honors from Baylor University and he attended the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands where he studied finance and international business. I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show, but enough out of me. Let's get him out of here. G'day, James. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. In the green room, we're talking a little bit about your, 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 your you know, what we're going to talk about today on the show, which is all about how new wannabe syndicators and investors get, you know, broker relationships, solid broker relationships in order to find those, you know, those cracking deals. Um, but before we dive into the nuts and bolts of the show, can you 
uh, rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Absolutely. And I love that term, by the way, cracking deals. I'm going I'm to steal that one from you. <laughs> Call you with a cracking deal. Yeah, uh, always. Yeah. So my, uh, uh, my family made me work. Uh, well, I had the blessing of working early. So uh, I was expected early on, uh, whether it was housework, mowing the lawn, washing cars. Uh, one of the things I, I think I got bored of that early and wanted to just ha have a love of learning. I've always been that way. I like being in situations that um, I may not know a lot about, but um, I can learn about and I can fail in doing so. And so um, in eighth grade, my parents dropped me off at uh, my first real job, I should say, was, uh, was on a ranch in Wyoming. Uh, in eighth grade, they dropped me off. I drove me up there and I got to work for the summer. And it was uh, everything from cleaning stalls to hosting guests to learning how to fly fish to setting tables, to taking orders. It was phenomenal, but I was surrounded by people that were in college, uh, recent graduates. And so it was, it was a little bit of a mentorship uh, where I could learn from them. They, they took me under their wing and they should take me out on the town sometimes. It's kind of, kind of funny thinking back on. Um, and so I, I really felt like I, I went, ran with that philosophy going forward. So in high school, did, did some similar things. Um, in college, I actually ended up being a a wrangler which you should probably have a little more experience uh being that but uh, i could learn and that was the thing and that's what actually the head wrangler i have a ton of respect for him he's one of those people that you meet those men you're just like oh gosh i am nothingness right and this guy is just knew everything about it tough um i mean he would he would get on horses that uh to train them and he would i never saw a guy thrown off a horse ever and that's that's pretty impressive uh close to myself um, just one of those manly men guys. Uh, he later told me, I remember asking him, I said, why did you hire me for this job? I mean, I'm, I'm from Texas. I know horses, but by no means am I, um, you know, going to join the rodeo next week. And he said, well, it's because you told me that um, you didn't know everything. And you get, he said, I was sick of hiring people that thought they knew everything. And he said, I think I wanted to teach somebody and I felt like you would be responsive to that and I was I mean, I, I'd asked him everything um, from how am I doing to um, you know walk me through this uh, type of I mean there's much of terrain right and so whether it was creeks or uh, trails I mean he was my mentor and uh, that was fun and so I think I took that mentality on very early of just learning from other people that are better than I am uh, in challenging situations and uh, I learned the grit early, which I think is, is very important, especially in this business. Uh, you've got to want it. Uh, you've got to be very hungry. Um, and you've got to love learning and being challenging and failing. And so, uh, again, I, I would uh, I'd point that to my young childhood of having jobs that were a little bit more challenging. Uh, it's where I had the opportunity to learn and uh, have fun doing it. It's interesting you say that because um, I also grew up around horses uh, my parents were, were, were both high school teachers we, we didn't have any fancy horses we just we had a bunch of nags and i remember working on uh one summer at a thoroughbred spelling complex uh very similar type of like you know what you'd call a ranch you know a couple of hundred horses uh spelling you know mucking out stables working 13 14 hours a day for you know, and i remember doing that back when i was 16 17 actually got 15 and the same sort of thing. It's just horses are very humbling animals to be around. It's a lot of work. You're up early, early, early starts, late finishes. And I, I remember the first day um, coming back from, from working and telling dad, like, 
man, call, call the owner and tell him I can't come back. It's just, it was backbreaking work and, and, but also very humbling and uh, enabled me to save money for, to, to, to do what I needed to do, you know, go out and hang out with friends. So uh, something sounds like I learned similar things to you and, you know, that learning of from others who know more and being, being humble in terms of, you know, saying that you don't know everything. And, and I think that's, you know, uh, um, you know, to your character, awesome that you were, you were very, um, early on in, in life, being able to identify that and say, "Hey, I'm ready, ready to hear, I'm ready to learn." Roll up the sleeves, and, and as you said, grit. Develop that grit, which a lot of people, a lot of entre- successful entrepreneurs I've, I interview on the show have that grit. So, so well done. Um, so, mate, t- talk me through the, the the university days. You know, you, you've gone from working on the farm, developing that grit. What what did you study, and, and why finance and, and, and Baylor? And then tell me a little bit about your, your time overseas in, in the in, in the Netherlands. Sure. Yeah. So uh, Baylor University is uh, not too far from my home, Austin, Texas, about an hour and a half. It's a small school, 15, it's probably up to 20,000 undergrad now. But uh, that's so taking a step back a little bit. Um, I, you know, school, so I've never been the smartest. I've never, you've seen me. I'm not the biggest. I'm probably five, six, oh, well, five, eight. Sorry. I'm a licensed uh, generous by eight, uh, 170, you know, I'm not a big guy, never been the smartest guy. Um, and so school for me, it's, um, I forget who kind of coined this term, but everything has a system, right? If you can figure out the system, you can be successful. School is the same way. Uh, law school is the same way. Business school is the same way. There's a system. And so I figured out early that I was never going to outsmart anybody, but if I learned the system, um, you can be successful. And so uh, going to a big school was not appealing to me. I had to know my teachers. Um, I had to be able to talk to them. I had to be able to show them that I wanted to be successful, even if I couldn't just walk in and make a test. Uh, people appreciate that if you, go, you know, if you go out of your way and say, hey, I'm, I really want this. Um, I am working my tail off. What do I have to do to, um, you know, whether it's a paper or a presentation, how do I get better? And so Baylor provided me with that. Uh, we had a classes of 15, 20 people. Uh, some you know, bigger ones were 30, uh, but it allowed me to have a smaller environment to where I could uh, talk to my professors, get to know them really well, um, along with just having a smaller community. And so uh, very close relationships with people that are in my fraternity, uh, that was a big function of it um, and just a, a smaller environment where I feel like I could thrive a lot more. Um, so it's very important to be, to be connected with that. And the bigger university, which is, I mean, my wife went to University of Georgia, massive university, is great for her. But again, I think it's learning the system and figuring out where, uh, what talents you have to really be successful where you are. And so that, that's the reason why I went to Baylor at the end of the day. Um, and then the University of Maastricht, that was such a, that was one of the best experiences of my entire life. Again, learning. Uh, I couldn't believe they gave us so much freedom. Actually, a private school uh, in Texas uh, that uh, they essentially did your, your rail pass. And we went to class from Monday to Wednesday or Thursday. And then we traveled wherever we wanted to after that. And that was just phenomenal. I mean, the people that we met there, uh, the relationship of able to have the culture uh, that we were thrown into taught me so much about life and people and uh, just a different side of, of the world too. I mean, the philosophies of, of school for them is much different than the United States. Um, the level of maturity for individuals that were my age was, was much different. Uh, there I felt as though 
the independence was much, uh, they're very independent, um, which uh, I think United States sometimes is a little bit different, but you had 17 year old kids that um, had been, you know, living on their own for a while and uh, just had experiences that I had never um, done before. And so I appreciated that a lot, uh, but it was just a, a learning process. Um, the culture again was, was very different. Uh, the, it wasn't about grades. It was about learning, which is very different, right? It, it's not, it's not about getting a 90 on a test for them. Um, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that too, but it was more about, um, what did they think about? It was very, it's, it was, um, um, uh, it was mostly presentations, what I remember. And so they graded you on that. And did you really understand the concept? And then they would you'd sit at a table and the teacher would talk to you about it. And you got a grade, and I thought that was very fascinating. Um, it was a different structure in the United States, and the the other students that I talked to said, "Yeah, that's kind of how we do it. It's not about getting a ninety-five or a ninety; it was just about getting a passing grade." Which um, just it it was very interesting because I think that that's very important um, to make sure somebody actually understands something, and you're uh, kind of uh, learning directly from the teacher as opposed to handing the test. So. Uh, it was uh, one of the best experiences of my life. Um, learned so much about the culture and have an appreciation um, for that side of the country as well. Love to go back. I'd love to take my wife out there and just go to the, the bars we used to go to. Um, uh, maybe some of the festivals are still there, but uh, it was really remarkable. I think you have to go back, mate. It's it's one of those things that I also learned. I didn't actually do international studies when I went to university, but um, so in terms of study abroad but I was with in my dormitory, a bunch of international folks. I was just put on that, that floor and yeah, re it really um, sparked an interest and Australians in general just love to travel and, you know, it's sort of, it's our rite of passage. <laughs> you, you finish university and then you go traveling for a year. Um, but it's awesome to hear that you came from, you know, particularly Austin, Texas and Baylor university. I'm sure they might, maybe they did because they had a really good sister relationship with Maastricht, but that would have been a very obscure, um, uh, university to do, to, to do. And I remember, you know, the Americans who came out to my university in Australia, University of Queensland, um, you know, were from bigger universities like Duke and um, uh, who were, you know, coming from, you know, LA's and the San Francisco's and the New York's of the world rather than, or universities and rather than a small town like uh, in Waco, Baylor. So you would have been, uh, uh, was it was a whole cohort that went out or was just you yourself? And so that's a great point. I saw the project or the opportunity. I didn't know where it was. Uh, honestly, I, I, I talked to my roommate. I said, you know what? We've been wanting, I mean, I wanted to be the president of my fraternity and I had all these plans. And I remember meeting with my roommate. He was still my best friend, uh, one of my best friends. And he said, hey, let's just do this. I don't know where it is, but why not? And he said, you go, I go. I said, let's go. Um, and so we left kind of what we were, you know, the plan, if you will, which I'm not a big uh, plan guy because it could change and maybe it should change in a lot of ways. But uh, that's why we did it. And we, <laughs> it was unique. You'd never heard of it. And it was about 15 people um, that uh, that were on the trip with us. And there was about, there were several hundred others uh, that were in the same program from all over the world. So one floor was, I think, Texas. The second floor was, um, I think, there's a handful of Australians there too. But I think they split it with um, another department. But each floor had a different um I was either from a different state or a different country in the capital all there. So it was, I, I was shocked they even let us do it. So it was phenomenal. Like you said, it was very uncommon. We didn't know what we were getting into, but it turned out to be one of the greatest things 
I've ever done, no doubt about it. Yeah, mate, look, I'm I'm a living, breathing proof of, I haven't lived in Australia since I was 21, I'm now 33. Uh, I've traveled around the world. Travel is honestly the best thing you can do. Uh, I don't. I, I was asked the other day on a podcast, what's the advice you give to an 18 year old? And I said, go traveling. You know, you, you'll come back and figure out what you want to do. You go traveling and get that sort of a worldly view of, of the world, of politics, of business, of you're going to be such a better entrepreneur for doing that, such a better business owner. Um, your, 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 your blinkers come off. You know, you go from being like this to having a, a more a better perspective and grasp of, you know, just what you're saying about how people, um, 17 year olds are out on, on their own. Like I, I was... I was at university at 17 and I was, you know, had a job and still going to university, very similar to, to, to what you experienced in, in Europe. You know, Australians, I like, I like the Europeans and stuff that we are encouraged to move out of home pretty quickly. Um, and, and the way in which you're le- talking about learning, I didn't experience necessarily that type of learning, but I do know the Dutch are very strong on that. And there's heaps of studies around um, the way in which, oh, just because you can sit a test doesn't mean you're necessarily understanding the concepts and, and people learn so, so differently. My, 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 my parents are both teachers. So I've come from that all my life. You know, it's not just about grind, grind, study, 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 pass a test. Did you retain any knowledge? You know, um, did you, you know, did you really get the concepts? And so I think that, you know, as we get, as we develop in terms of our needs and wants as workers in the workforce, the way in which we learn those skills are going to change in the future um, because, Historically, my opinion on this is um, we have been, our education system across the world has been, you know, developed for manufacturing jobs. You know, you have to come in one end, in one university, come in through university, one end, spit you out a, a worker bee and you go off to work and, and you, be, you know, grind, grind, grind. Now, as, as industries change, as technology changes, the way in which we teach needs to change. And, and then we could talk a lot about that on this show, but uh, it's so fascinating. We'll get started on that. I completely <laughs> agree. Um, if you would ask me, just one more point on that. about the other day, what did, I, what did I learn in college? And I'm going to get hammered for this, but um, I, I'm not going to tell you anything educational necessarily. I took some tests and, you know, learned a few things. But what I learned, I really learned in college and going to Maastricht was how to lead, how to socialize, um, how to uh, really get through a system of education and um, get to leadership positions, right? And figuring out how to navigate all of that, which ultimately I think is how people become successful. You have to learn and understand how to get there, right? It's not just, uh, it has somewhat to do with knowledge, but more so to do with action. Um, that's what I learned in college. I loved it. Um, I'm exactly the same way. I, um, the, the big thing, the big realization when I was, uh, cause I was, I was a year younger or, or 17 when I started my first year of college or university and it was civil engineering. And I remember just how independent you had to be. And I remember a teacher at high school and I didn't go to a private, you know, private high school or anything like that it was just a state state education um, and I remember him telling me, he's like, you guys are going to go to university next year and we're not, no one's going to spoon feed you information. You have to do it on your own. You know, you, you have to get to class, you have to study and that's all on you. And so one of the biggest things I learned from, from university was not necessarily what I learned, but it was the way in which I applied myself, you know, cause I had all this freedom now, you know, going out and partying and socializing. But then I also had to get up the next morning, go to class and make it happen and take action and make sure I studied for those exams because I'll get a, I'll get a failing grade. Uh, and then I'd be, you know, kicked out of university. So one of the biggest things I learned was my management of time. 
um, and and my own responsibility that okay, I, I, I've got to go and I've got to have a job on the weekend because I've got to pay for rent or whatever, I've got to pay for food. Um, but then I've also got to get and shop to class and, and make sure I am learning. And then I've got to go and, and you know study for that. But then I also need to socialize and I need to develop skills and around socializing and, and leadership, as you said. And it's not necessarily what you learn, but it's a, the way in which you learn how you learn. And um, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I love studying civil engineering uh, and just being in the university uh, sphere. But you know, stu- studying in the in the uh, working, being in the workforce, I, I hated it, and it just I was another cog in the piece. And we can talk about that uh, to, to to the nth degree. But mate, no, it's hugely, hugely interesting stuff, and uh, really love your. Thank you for for, for giving it, being vulnerable and. Um, telling us your insights. I'm actually headed back to Holland here in a couple of weeks because uh, my, my wife's turning 33 and I'm taking her out there. To, to She's never been. So um, I'm originally from Holland. Oh, my, my, my heritage is from Holland. Goosens is Hoysens and, and my, my opa and oma are a first generation. Um, no, sorry, uh, uh, my dad is first generation Australian and uh, that my, my opa and oma escaped after World War II to Australia um, from Dutch Indonesia. Um, so very, you know, I'm, I, Holland is in my blood. I've been there many, many times. I, I've been to Maastricht, beautiful part of the world. I uh, had a lot of friends. I had two friends who went and studied out there, international business and finance, at, did a master's degree out there. So um, it was when, you, when I read your, in your bio that you went to Maastricht, it's, uh, I, I, it's, it, it's close to home for me. So They likely went to University of Maastricht. No, they did. 100% did. They, they, they did. They did uh, one of my very close friends, he did a master's out there of international business and finance um, for a whole year, I think, essentially equivalent of an MBA-esque type of thing. I think it was either uh, 12 months or 18 months, but he, he was like fully enrolled as an international student. Uh, he, he had the best time. So he can be doing was that? Speak Indie Deutsch? Uh, I don't speak Indie Deutsch uh, because my dad, my mum's side is is uh, is from Australia. So, you know, you typically pick up your mother's tongue and mum was English. So dad was the Dutch. Even dad, my dad doesn't speak any Dutch, but my opa and oma do all the time. And so um, anyway, uh, we could talk about this for hours, but I want to dive into the nuts and bolts of, of today's show, which is all in, in and around developing uh, broker relationships. Um, so before we do get into that, I just want to give you give me a quick snapshot. I've got a perception of where we are in the economy, but I'd love to hear you as the broker. You're seeing transactions being done every single month. Um, how is the how's Q1 2019 started out for you guys? Sure. And so um, it's you know I've worked in uh, Texas my entire life, uh, so I did I'm just many years in the years in the Houston market. Uh, very different beast than Austin, and so. Uh, what I've learned, and we talked to many, many investors from different parts of the country, different parts of the world even, and so it, it is different uh, based on region, no doubt about it. Uh, talking to people from the Northeast, there are certain things that are thriving there where other elements of real estate are not. Um, for instance, you know, office space, they're a uh, much different level than where we are in Texas, right? It's, it's just things are different. And so um, when I'm talking about from a national standpoint, um, it, it would be much different than my local knowledge of Austin or Central Texas because uh, things that are happening in our market have either already happened in Northeast or uh, uh, West Coast. Um, and it's just, it's a different um, understanding, right? So when I'm working in, when I was in Houston, I worked in Austin, I'd have to retrain my brain. And so the reason I bring that up is because uh, what I would like to talk about here is I, so I have... Um, Local knowledge of how I feel our economy is in Central Texas right now. I think it is different from the national market. Um, but uh, as far as where we are today, 
it is uh, pretty positive. I mean, Central Texas is still very affordable. That is, in talking to people from New York, West Coast, it is, from our perspective, very unaffordable. So when people throw out 1,500 a square foot, I, I have a hard time comprehending that because 300, 300 a square foot is high for us. And so a uh, very different market, uh, Austin, uh, specifically to Austin. We've always been a small town. Uh, we are now uh, on national headlines. We are growing. It is becoming very different. We've never had people buying up or leasing entire uh, buildings in downtown. Uh, Houston, Dallas, they've had that before. Our market is just now coming into that. So it's very interesting seeing how that relates to real estate, our business, who's coming here, uh, what is attracting these companies and why, and how that's going to really influence everything else and what I do every day. Because it will. Uh, national headlines uh, spark interest. So we're getting calls, more calls from out-of-state people than we ever have. It's because they want to know what's happening and why. Uh, in Austin, for, uh, specifically for Austin. In Central Texas, uh, San Antonio is a good example too because uh, I think your bigger markets, Northeast, West Coast, um, and even your larger markets in Texas for, let's say, Houston, Dallas, um, those are international, very large markets and they're getting um, expensive, tight. You, you, you're mentioning a lot about office. Um, just if we take a step back, uh, one of the one of the comments you made before was, you know, you're you're seeing or you're hearing stuff. So you're seeing stuff in Central Texas that was, has already happened in the Northeast and the West. So what do you mean by that? Like, give me give me some specific examples of um, what are you this this what are you seeing uh, compared to um, the, those other markets in, in the country? Sure. So the the market drivers are affordability and a lot of it is, is cap rates and returns. And so as that gets much more competitive, uh, people are flocking to Central Texas and Austin, San Antonio. Those are the markets that I work. And I think right now they're becoming much more attractive because people can wrap their heads around our prices, our returns. And Austin is becoming a city that is in number one uh, best places to live, number one uh, uh, it's actually the top millennial city in the nation right now, as far as uh, where millennials are coming post college. Um, and so those stats are, are very real and they're on the map, they're national headlines. And so it's, it's something that, uh, again, Northeast has already seen, West Coast has already seen Seattle, Microsoft has been there for over 10 years. Um, the Googles of the world, they've been in these locations for a long time. Uh, we are just now seeing that in the last 24 months. And so it, it's had an impact on our market. And so what I mean by that is that uh, people are seeing similar trends to other markets that have been very successful and they're trying to find that next market. They're trying to find that next Denver, Seattle, New York, um, San Francisco, which is, you know, don't even get me started on that. I mean, the prices there, you know, astronomical. Um, not even, we don't, we're not even 10% close to, to uh, as far as price per square foot, uh, and the trades are, are not even close uh, to what we're seeing on, on other uh, coastlines. And so uh, that's been the, the, the biggest driver. I mean, people love San Antonio, for example, because it's slow and steady. The, the, the cost basis uh, compared to other markets is extremely attractive. Um, and to just get into the multifamily sector, and let me know if you want me to kind of, I know you're familiar with these terms, but I don't want to lose anybody here. From a price per unit, uh, 80000 a unit, for example, is sound, is 
you cannot find that in the majority of markets, uh, larger markets uh, right now. And in Austin, that's very difficult to find. But when people hear that and they hear um, what's called a mid five cap uh, returns, that's interesting because where can you find that? I mean, you can't really, unless you go to a secondary market or a market that uh, is maybe a little bit under the radar um, type of thing. But there's also a reason uh, why uh, those markets are where they are. I mean, you're capped on a higher level of uh, price per unit because price per unit is just that equates to rent. And so there's a threshold there. Um, and so that's really driven a lot of international interest to our market. Uh, Austin out our absorption, our, the deliveries uh, are, so I'm sorry, the deliveries outpace, uh, <laughs> absorption outpace deliveries, which is very unique. Uh, for a small market delivering 10,000 units, the big question is, will you absorb? And people were scared to death about that. And I was a little bit nervous because it, it caused rent growth to, well, so it, it, when we deliver 10,000 units, I couldn't point to rent growth which makes sense, right? When you have that many units, small market, the question was when you absorb, what will happen? Are you gonna go back to five or 6%? Is it gonna be 2%? What are we gonna underwrite for, for rent growth? And we outpaced it and jumped back to five, uh, four and a half to five and a half percent, which was amazing for our market. Uh, Cause that means uh, we're healthy. Uh, we didn't overdevelop and um, job 40,000 jobs last year. And so that, those are very good numbers uh, for our market. In San Antonio, the same thing. Young people are staying in that market. That has never happened. That was not interesting to people, a younger demographic five years ago. But San Antonio has done a phenomenal job of creating a 24-hour lifestyle around the Pearl, for example, uh, where you have office, restaurants, you go on there on Saturday, it's packed, thousands of people, and it's a lifestyle. And so San Antonio, Austin, Central Texas in particular has done a great job of that. And I think the bigger markets, as they get so much more expensive and cap rates um, uh, are uh, compressing, so to speak, uh, we are really becoming the benefit of that because we're still very affordable and we have rent growth and jobs. And th those are the three biggest elements that are driving our market. And as of this moment, it's all been pretty positive. So. Uh, if you asked me this last year, I would have had a different response, but that is my honest, honest answer right now. That's no, you, you bring up some really interesting points. Obviously, affordability is huge. That's why people are flocking to Central Texas because of the affordability. They want yield on their money. Five and a half, you know, five to six percent cap rates on let's call it class B or even C's. You know, you started starting to see some C plus value add stuff that's trading at you know high fives, low sixes. Um, but with all that being said, you know with so much international and, and out of state um, interest in trying to chase that yield, inevitably your, 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 your cap rates are going to compress. So how have you seen cap rates compress um, in those two markets? And, and, and let's, let's be honest, you know, San Antonio is not Austin. And one point I want to make is that I've always thought Austin has graduated from a tier two city to a tier one city. And, and I've talked a little bit about on this show, tier tier two meaning um, more flyover type of you know I, I would even I would even classify Dallas and Houston even though technically they're not tier two, but I'm not going there. Like if I'm coming to the United, States, I'm thinking from an international point of view. Like tier one city to me, San Francisco, LA, uh, potentially Seattle, New York, Boston, there, Chicago maybe. 
they're the, they're the destination cities, right? The rest is sort of like under the, you know, maybe it's Denver, Colorado starting to come up. I think I, in my mind, it's Denver, Colorado, Austin, Texas, um, Miami to an extent. Miami's always been a, a destination city. Um, but people who are going there, they're, they're on the international map. Um, for, I don't hear a lot of people going, oh, I'm going overseas to, to America. I'm going to Dallas to, to vacation <laughs> or Houston, right? They're not, they're not saying that sort of stuff. So that's how I see it. But, but I think personally, Austin has catapulted, you compared to 20 years ago, it's catapulted itself into that. It's on the world stage. You say Sydney, London, Austin, right? Because it's a tech hub. You've got direct flights in and out of uh, Austin to London right now. Um, but again, back to my original point, San Antonio is not Austin, but it is, it is definitely um, reaping the benefits of being so close because it's only an hour, hour and a half away. So back to my original question is, with everything, with people flocking to Central Texas, cap rates are really compressed. And me as a buyer, like I can't pay a five and a quarter cap for a class C, you know, 1980s deferred maintenance through the wazoo. So what are you seeing and and where do you think this is going? Are we ever going to get back to cap rate expansion um, uh, or or more of a quote unquote affordability? Because I know I've changed my uh, buying criteria from 1980s assets. I don't want to buy 1980s assets anymore. I want to buy 1990s or early 2000 where there's a little bit of value add. There's a pop there. I want to buy in and around core infill core locations like Austin um, where we're going to see that 150 to $200 rental bump if you come and put in a really nice, you know, finish. So how, what are you seeing in terms of that on the cap rate side? Um, and, and to my point, one, one thing I want to quickly state before I'd let you take the mic, cause I've been ranting on here for a little bit, um, is Q, Q1 for us as an acquisitions point of view is we've been underwriting a lot, but it's just not penciling and things are bloody tough to make pencil right now. So what, what do you say to all those, all those, all those statements I've just bombarded you with? Yeah. So we get this question a whole lot. I talk about this a whole lot, a whole lot. And um, it, it's, it, so I'm from Austin, right? I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of the trades ever since I was new into the business. Um, I kind of regret being a broker at this point. I should have just bought everything, uh, you know, eight years, maybe four years ago. Um, but it's, again, so when you go, I'm trying to figure out a way to say this to where I'm not, it's, there's X factors in Austin that you just can't underwrite for. And so there's deals that I would, and I, I talked to uh, your partner, Andrew Campbell, a lot about this. I'll say, hey, remember that deal that I showed you two years ago uh, that you were struggling to get to? It just sold again for about $3 million higher. And I'm not saying that throw up and come, I'm just saying that there's an X factor there that um, here's some things that are just tough to underwrite for. But uh, rent growth is real. Value add is real. Now it depends on the market. And so if we're speaking specifically to, like I said, when I was in Houston working in Austin, I had to retrain my brain. It is just different fundamentals. Houston, you can develop anywhere you want. There's no zoning. Uh, so what does that do? You, you, can have, you, can have, you can overdevelop in a pocket. Uh, to, so if you have a ton of A-class units come online in a pocket where you have some P's and C's, well, that's going to affect things. In Austin, it's very difficult to develop a uh, high, high barrier to entry. And so you see a lot of older product um, in very good locations that'll always be there. If there's not a mid-rise next to it. There's not, um, you just can't do that in Austin. So I think it's a love-hate with developers. I think it's actually been very good for our market because it has allowed us to really be delicate in bringing in a mass amount of deliveries. And so that does 
it does two things. One, it has a larger delta between your class A up here and B and C. Um, and so there's not a lot of, uh, um, there's not a lot of 90s and 2000 products in core locations because of the zoning, for example. Um, and so you have a huge disconnect. And so when you're telling me, um, so if I, if I bring you a C-class deal at the five and a quarter cap in central Austin, you buy that all day long. No doubt about it. You don't even think about that. And reason, so you asked me, why would I do that? Because the B's and C's, if it hasn't been touched, first off, that's not a bad going in cap rate. Um, two, you're going to see 5% rent growth right now. And three, uh, we're not seeing pushback on premiums post upgrades in Austin. I'm not speaking for the, any market in the United States or Texas. I'm talking specifically about Austin. We have not seen pushback on upgrades because people want a nice product, uh, but they want to live in the core and they will pay you for that, which um, it, it's, it's still affordability play. And so, uh, a C deal, let's just, let's use a rough example right now, uh, leasing for $800, $800 right now, pretty plain Jane carpets in the bedroom, um, great location. Uh, if you spend, let's call it five to seven a unit, five to $7,000 a unit, upgrading, uh, flooring, countertops, appliances, let's just keep it at that. You can likely get a $250 upgrade premium, I'm sorry, um, to where your rents are now $1,000. And that's kind of the new bar. And so what the, the name of the game is finding that level of affordability. So at $1,000, you're still down way down here, your A's are still up here, and you still have room to play. And so as you, uh, uh, as you say, you take those rents to $1,000, you still have organic rent growth, as these A's are getting more expensive, as our city gets more expensive, you can now just ride the organic rent growth. And so 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, as we've historically seen. Um, and so that's, that's the biggest factor in those B and C deals. I mean, it's, it, it's relative to cap rate. It's what's affordable and what can you do with it and where, what rents can I get? I mean, that's, that's how you see past kind of going in cap rates is just knowing the market, feeling it, knowing what's affordable, knowing what others are getting and having a good idea of what the high end is because let's just be honest millennials and a younger demographic cannot afford that um it's expensive and so what do they they still want amenities they still want to live in a good location they still want to have a 24-hour lifestyle and so where do they live you can't buy a home in austin right now i can tell you that my parents purchased their home um, in west austin when i was in elementary school for three hundred fifty thousand dollars. that home just sold for two and a half million dollars. Whoa. <laughs> I still give them a hard time. I should have never, ever moved. Um, you know, you could easily be retired, but. Well, um, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt there, but it goes to the point where back to what I was making before is that Austin is now a New York or it's not a New York, but it's San Francisco, LA type of where the dirt is more valuable than the product is that's sitting on top of it. And one of the biggest things I learned or I, I thought when I moved to the United States, um, in Australia, it's a similar, we have the same thing. The dirt is where the value is uh, in Australia, right? Um, and I've always been taught that. Uh, the, the, the house is replaceable. It, it, you have depreciation on it. It's in 10, 20 years time, you're going to have to knock the bloody thing down and do again. So right. Austin is now seeing that 
that's what I'm saying. It's in that tier one category, not only from a destination point of view, but also from a dirt point of view, just the cost of dirt is where the intrinsic value is. So buying something at a five and a quarter cap on a class C, it's because the product on its rubbish, right? It's 30 years old, 40 years old. But if you can get that rental bump and you can then look at year one cap, right? What's your, if you go in and do 50% of the units in year one and you get the bump, What's that new year one cap rate? And I, when I look at my underwriting, I always look at that year one or year stabilized cap rate and see where you are there. I, I'm seeing that entry cap rate, and I love your thoughts on this, is that five and a half. I'm usually seeing six and a half or six, 100, 100 to 150 basis points between going in versus call it end of year two cap rates. And that makes me then get the cash flow that I need to pay, you know, that, that investors want to see. Is that typically what you're doing as well with your underwriting? So that's a very good way to underwrite. You're protecting your downside. Um, I get it. Uh, so I would say this is going to sound very brokery, but uh, it is, I can, rec- I can point you to several clients that we've worked with. They're hitting their pro forma year fives and year sometimes two, three pretty easily in Austin. And that's, that's real. Uh, there's a deal in East Riverside. We've now sold four times in five years. And it's not because they had to sell, but how do you underwrite for that reading, how do you wonder what it for that? You can't. It has to be a feel. It has to. And if you look at it, what's driving it? It has to be the affordability because our city is just getting much more expensive, um, but it's still extremely affordable. And so, yes, that's how I would underwrite for it as a downside. Um, but at the end of the day, the X, I mean, you buy these things for, look, I mean, singles are great, doubles are great, but ultimately we all want to hit a home run, right? And so um, it's, it's the X factor that um, not necessarily that you can assume, but that you can have a sense of and in certain pockets, it's, it's people have been very, very successful, but to give you actual numbers there, 150 basis points. Is that what you said? Kind of. Well, I was, I'm saying that when I look at my year two NOI versus my, my going in purchase price, um, you, you, I like to see a, a, a spread on my exit cap rate when I get my year five NOI versus my going in. So if I bought it at five and a quarter, I, I usually assume 10 basis points a year. Uh, so 50 basis points spread on that year five exit. So you take the NOI from year five divided by um, 5.75. Um, but what I was trying to get at is that people are so scared of that going in cap rate. Oh God, it's five and a quarter. But look at where if your business plan comes to fruition in a place like Austin, you need to look at that year two-ish cap rate of what that NOI is at the end of year two versus what you purchase it for. And you'll notice, I, I notice in my underwriting, that you're 100 to 150 basis points higher in that six to six and a half percent cap rate again, which is where you're comfortable to pay prefs to get decent cash flow to, you know, you know, eat because you can eat cash flow, you can't eat IRR. So that was what I was trying to get at. You know, the, the exit cap rate is sort of a different thing, beast and 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 to to what you said that for you've you've sold that deal four times. Well the way in which you would technically underwrite it was your cap rate is compressing. Uh, instead of doing an expansion on year five or 50 basis points, you may be going the other way. Uh, and that's where your that's how you get your big bump in you've sold it four times and you hit your pro forma, you know, all those times. So that's just my my opinion. And I'd love your thoughts on that from a point of view. Great question. Are cap so is it is it cap rate compression that the values are increasing, or is it uh, something else? Um, my personal opinion, if I'm looking at the past three years, 
I don't know that cap rates have changed that much in three years in Austin. I think that um, it's just been a function of somebody buys it at, um, we, we, yeah, we have this conversation a lot of where do I put that exit cap rate um, after I go in and renovate and do our business plan. And if, if I send them, if I, if I, you know, a lot of times I'll send rent or sales comps with the cap rates and they, you won't believe them because they're just very low from an exit standpoint. And so, uh, or about the same where they're buying them now. And so how do you, nobody's really going to underwrite for the same cap rate, right? I mean, I, I completely get it. But um, if you're, if you look at another function of that, uh, let's say rent growth, for one, uh, that uh, exceed expectations, because you likely underwrite for probably 3%, if I had to guess, or three and a half, be conservative. Um, what if you get, what if you're in a pocket in central Austin that gets seven or 8%, um, mm. I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing that, but I'm just saying right. there's the upside there, right? Happens on deals that are at the bottom of rents. And so, um, I don't know that it's been compressed cap rates. I think it has more of a function to do with rent growth and, uh, those assumptions just being a little bit more aggressive than people thought people getting a little bit more for renovations than they thought. Um, I'm seeing that time and time again. There's a, there was a renovated deal that I sold last year um, that uh, uh, has just resold. Let's see, it's been about eight months, I, I think. Um, they haven't done anything to that deal. Um, it's, a, it's likely a lower cap rate than what they bought it for um, because somebody uh, is looking at the rent growth going forward and it did surpass expectations. And so um, that is an example of cap rates maybe compressing a little bit, but it had more of a function to do with rent growth and being affordable. Now in a pocket that's very expensive that now has $3 a square foot rent last year. Which is crazy, right? $3 a square foot is what I'm seeing in downtown LA, three, you know, three fifty to four bucks. So, and I'm sure you're getting that in your class A stuff in downtown Austin. And we're starting to, yeah. And even on East, uh, East Austin, which I never went there when I was a kid, besides to go to uh, um, eat Mexican food. It was a great spot, Cisco's, which is now a friend has, but we went there after church. Uh, that's it. That was the only thing out there. Um, now it is breweries, mid-rises. You can imagine is on East Austin now. And uh, those rents are now approaching $2.50 competing, you know, because downtown is increasing as the core is getting more expensive, which is uh, making that $2.50, $2.15, $2.25 affordable, right? With the amenities. Um, and so uh, that's kind of what we're seeing in those pockets. Uh, after all that development, um, the rent growth is just, it's, it's real and it's affected those B's and C's to where people could not underwrite for it. And that's kind of what I'm talking about is you can't underwrite for that. You can't necessarily guarantee that will happen. Um, but in certain pockets it has. And um, sorry, that's my email, I think, uh, pinging me. And so those are the pockets you really want to identify to get those type of home runs, to get the, um, the returns that are just a little bit unique. And I think it's also to do with long-term horizon, like back, backing Austin as a long-term 10-year hold. I'm seeing a lot, even to our underwriting, we're, we're underwriting instead of five, six-year holds, we're underwriting to seven to 10-year holds, putting agency debt on it um, because we just know that intrinsic value you'll... And, and I know from my underwriting that you're in a safe... So you're in a safer area. When I say safer, you're in a better growth area. So your returns are going to be less because the um, the risk is not there right and so investors expectations has got to readjust and i'm seeing stuff pencil at 12 to 14 percent irrs over seven years 
sort of doubling their money in eight years, where historically you might have seen it, you know, 15 to 17% in five years, and you're doubling your money in six. And it's just, but you're in a, but you're in a better area, the growth, you, you've, you've now got data to say that, you know, even you said before, if you asked you this question a year ago, you would have had a different answer. There's that data that's starting to come where Austin is truly elevating itself to being that tier one. Um, and the long-term growth is there, which is, which is very, very interesting. And look, I could t- keep talking to you for hours and hours about this because one thing I want to quickly get onto before we get into some, some final questions here is um, compare that to San Antonio. There's been a, definitely been a bleed and we're invested in San Antonio. We've got four assets down there, nearly a thousand units. Um, and I'm, I was there the other day last week and I'm, I was actually started to notice all the cranes, the tower cranes in the air. And if you know anything about San Antonio, they haven't built a high rise there since the mid nineties, I think it was. So to see all the pearl breweries and the stuff like that, and, and San Antonio is even more affordable than Austin. You're probably buying at 110 to 130 a door for a class BC in Austin. You still can probably buy 80, you know, low, high 70s, depending on where you are, to low 90s a door in San Antonio for, for the same type of product. Um, you may not get the same rent bump because we're, we're underwriting to sort of 125 to 150, where in Austin you could get, as you said, 200 to 250. So there's that the affordability index. But I can definitely see it coming that way. So overall, there's got to be a ceiling, right? And, and, and so what is that ceiling in, and you know, we're only talking really specifically about two markets here, but in your opinion, it can't just keep, rents just can't keep going up uh, because affordability, you're going to lose that affordability eventually. So what, what's your opinion on, on, on that sort of over the next 10 years, say? Sure. So um, great question. Uh, it's, it's something that I would, I would point, um, so the other, I would say we're benefiting from other larger markets. And so San Antonio is still significantly below Austin, Houston, Dallas, but it's to its value, right? Because people are now moving there. Young people are staying there. And so I would say, does, uh, San Antonio's, um, you know, see how how to kind of word this, um, I think it's, I would cap certain markets, but the fact of the matter is when we're talking about these two, they're, they're, the, one, they're the two, well, San Antonio is still uh, one of the top affordable markets, like you said, um, in the state. And so in Houston cap, yeah, maybe, but San Antonio is not even close to that. And so they're benefiting from all of those very um, high growth markets. Dallas is a great example. That has been a very uh, aggressive market the last few years. And so who has benefited the most from that? San Antonio, right. um, where it's becoming on Austin, their- right. You know, it's 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 Austin's going kaboom, and you know everything. People are, you know, as you're saying, you know, your, your parents bought for three fifty. Those three fifty buyers are still, you know, workers and blue collar workers need somewhere to live, and San Antonio just down the road. So, very, 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 very interesting. Um, mate, I want to get into some just a little bit about, but I want to be respectful of your time because I could talk to you for hours. But just in and around developing broker relationships as as new investors come into markets, um, what are you sort of what are you seeing the best way to approach brokers? You're a young guy. You're a hustler. You can. You know, I'm a young guy. I know I've got our story of how we met you guys, and and just so everyone everyone knows. Um, we've bought all our assets through Newmark Knight Frank. We've never gone with any other broker, brokerage shop. Andrew and I have talked a lot about do we, we need to you know, check out some other brokers, but you guys have been really good to us and, and, and we love you guys. But how did, you know, Andrew was very much the linchpin of, of this, this introduction, but what advice can you give 
to other people wanting to develop that solid relationship with brokers. Because let's be honest, multifamily, in my opinion, yellow letters and buying directly from sellers, um, unless you're in like tertiary markets that aren't don't have that growth potential, long-term stability, it's just, you know, multifamily owners are going to be more sophisticated than your single family folks. And, and the, the maybe the, particularly in the way we are in this market cycle, I, I think brokers hold the key uh, keys to the kingdom. Would, would you agree? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a relationship business at the end of the day. Um, and so uh, I think this is a very important topic uh, because we get, especially recently, I've gotten a lot of calls from people um, and emails that said, Hey, do you have an off market deal? Can you show me an off market deal? I don't, I don't know those people. And the answer is no, uh, because well, I, do that. I called Reed and Andrew. Um, so, uh, but there, there's more to it than that. Um, and I think again, it's very important because the difference is a short term perspective versus a long term perspective. It has to be a long term perspective. If you go get into this business and whether it's going to direct and Hey, that's work sometimes. Um, or um, even a broker relationship, if it's short term, it's, it's, it's very difficult and it's not sustainable, in my opinion. Uh, it has to be a long-term focus. That's the way I've shifted uh, you know, my thought process and, and career. It's long-term, serve, 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 be a resource, and the deals will come. Um, that's true, but it requires discipline and it requires patience. Um, and so I think your company is a phenomenal example of this. I remember first meeting Andrew on a... a my colleague, Patrick Short, who runs our debt and equity. Uh, I know he's done a lot of work for you guys, but he said, hey, you gotta, you gotta meet Andrew. Um, here's what he's looking for. He's getting into the business. I'm like, okay, great. Um, sure, happy to do it. Um, but what Andrew did, what, I, I guess you were there actually on the second time uh, with Patrick Short. Um, but what, um, what was developing there was a relationship with our team. And so the debt and equity, perspective um having them sign off is huge that means we're not wasting our time if we're showing the deal and um executing is another very big component and having a trust uh, between the two parties is also huge um loyalty is is all we have in our business in a lot of ways especially if you've been doing it for a long time been doing this 10 years or so um now and loyalty is is huge and so um the, the way that if we are looking at relationship with you guys it's um you know we're going to show you an off-market deal or just our top deal that just came to our table uh from a guy we've been talking to for 10 years no because i have a um i have to go to that seller and go to bat for whoever i'm bringing to the table there because that relationship is very important so after execution so first off i want to give advice never call a broker for the first time and say um do you have any off-market deals that is very off-putting um and it, it's saying you don't you, know, you don't really care about my relationship with my clients that i've worked a long time for I mean, and you're, talk, you're talking about the seller client correct yeah, correct yeah, 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 um, yeah. so to bring somebody to the table especially on an off-market basis i would have to look at that seller the client in the eye uh, just as i would for you if you wanted to sell something and say i go to back these guys they're not going to mess around i've closed with them um they're legitimate it is worth uh allowing them, you know, giving them a shot to see what they can do. And that relationship, um, lots of people, especially long-term ones, they'll listen and they, they really lean on you for that advice. And so we're putting our reputation on the line, um, which we don't take lightly. And so, um, you know, a group uh, like Wildhorn, for example, who we've closed deals with, you did what you said you were going to do. You have a relationship with our team. We all know you. We want to work together. 
Um, and so I would, yeah, absolutely. And so you can go to bat for that and say, um, uh, you know, this group is very capable. Uh, they just bought the deal down the street. Um, I know you may not be selling right now, for example, but, uh, you know, they would love to do it. And that's a conversation that most people don't get. But uh, if you have a relationship, you want to work together. You um, enjoy working with your friends and people that, that execute. It's, it makes it fun. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think what, one point that you made before was in, in what I'd learned working with your team, both in San Antonio and in Austin, um, <clears throat> is how much repeat business you guys do have. And that's really what brokerage firms, you know, you know, there's, there's really only, let's call it an Austin, you guys are the top performers with maybe CBRE. I, I, I don't know the stats, but I know Andrew has a bit more of the stats, but each market has their top performers. And the reason that they're the top performers is because sellers and buyers keep going back. So I buy a deal from you five years later. Hey, you want to sell it again? You know, and I know one of the assets we bought in San Antonio, um, one of the brokers down there, he was like, yeah, I sold this back in the early 2000s. You know, I sold this to the, I sold it, sold it to the seller who we were buying it off, you know? So it, these deals have been around since you know the 80s and they've probably changed hands three, four, five, six times. In Austin, you're seeing it change hands four times in five years or whatever it is. Um, it's, you're coming, you're, you're getting, you're getting fed because you're getting the deal. You know, obviously they've got to sell it and, and, and part, you have a fee and that's fantastic. And, and that is how business is done. And it's, Real estate, in my mind, is so. It's like the um, you know it, the insider trading is not a, is not an issue like like it is on, on Wall Street because it's just it is a relationship. Hey man, I got a deal off market. Do you you want to have a first bite at it because you know we know you guys and we've we've had relationships over these years. So I think it's it was very crystallizing to hear you guys with that track record and 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 to what you just said before. Don't call me up and say do you have an off market deal like because you don't value my relationship. And I think everyone listening out there that is key advice like this is not a you've got something to sell and i want to buy it um because we're not in that market anymore where it, it was we're very much still in a seller's market and so to try and buy those gems you probably have to un you know go through 20 deals to find the one um exactly. so you yeah. want that phone call right 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 and then, so with that what advice do you have for guys you know who were us three years ago when when you're first starting out given how hot it is in this market what, what, what real advice do you have for, for people wanting to develop strong broker relationships? Absolutely. Um, and so I would be, um, first off, execution. My advice to people that are entering the market that are planning to expand, the biggest thing you can do is, is do what you say you're going to do. Do not reach. I know this is maybe a sensitive topic, but it's, it's just if you execute the first time and you do what you say you're going to do, it's just the floodgates do open. It's, it's really as simple as that. We do not like to start over, and it's um, it's something that we don't forget about. If somebody, um, you know, say they they went into a deal and didn't quite um, understand it fully, and then had to bet, that looks very bad for us because we have uh, we go uh, one of our biggest strengths is we don't start over very often. When we do a deal, we want to get it done. If you can become that guy and execute and do what you say, even if it's a maybe there's a roof issue that'll cost you twenty thousand dollars. Um, it's likely that you'll make that up on the next few deals because if you really say you're going to do the deals, just keep coming because it's these guys are real. Um, they will execute. They do what they say they're going to do. You don't have to worry about nonsense and um, you know just not having you know there's several different reasons of why uh, that is very 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 important. But it leads to a deal. One lead one deal leads to another deal, and people don't forget. And so. We've done five deals with you guys and it's, you know, we're planning to do more. <laughs> so 
but 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 for, for our point of view, from a buyer's point of view, right now, it is it is getting tougher, and we're trying to make those prefs work. And you know, from a an equity standpoint, we have to retrain our investors to understand the risk reward returns of we're not in the times where you could get 17%. Maybe in tertiary markets, you maybe can still get a 17%, but you don't have that stability and the downside protection of an Austin market or a really growing San Antonio or you know Dallas or Houston or whatever that might be. So um, yeah, we, on both sides of the coin, we, we value the relationship we have with you guys and you value vice versa. But we're, you're also a really good resource to us personally. When we are looking at a deal, um, I know, you know, I, I, I call it Patrick or you or whoever and like, hey, man, I'm thinking about this, this and that. Do you think what, what are you what's really going on here? Like, I know we had a deal off market deal that came to us in Austin and the lady wanted X dollars, but it just really only penciled it at a certain amount, probably two million dollars less. And I, I, I think it was either you or someone else at the firm was like, yeah, it, it really is only worth that much. <laughs> so <laughs> underwriting reflection, and I was, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm wiping my brow because Andrew's- keep that deal. Yeah, don't say that, you know, but yes. Um, uh, so that's exactly right. And so that's another, so uh, before I get that, I wanted to not forget about this one too, is feedback is crucial um, on every deal. So uh, there's, there's a few groups that um, are trying to you know, get in the market, they wanna see deals and what they're doing well is, is y'all do this, well too is feedback and so even if you're far off give feedback give feedback underwrite it get back to the broker quickly uh to broker you like um you know maintain that relationship you know here's where i'm seeing it here's where it landed here's the offer that's that's helpful for us um, a lot of people say i'm not going to submit an offer if i'm too far off well it's important to have feedback too it always helps and if somebody can jump on something very quickly um, and make it a priority that's great because sometimes I have, and there was a deal where I had three days. Uh, I, I was going to likely sell in three days. And I called you guys on it. Um, but you, Andrew, I, was, I think we were hitting golf balls. He went right back to his office, underwrote the deal, gave me feedback right then. He got in the game and I, uh, I uh, brought him in. Our underwriting team wrote it. Andrew doesn't run to write, but that's it. You know, it, it's very important. And, well, and the San Antonio deal, the high key, or the, um, I guess I'll say names, but the, that San Antonio deal back in the yep, yep. Uh, last year, jumped on it, feedback. I knew that was going to happen. You know, you guys were uh, one of the top groups and one of the first calls on that because you provide feedback. And then to your next point of um, there's a trust. Uh, there's got to be a trust component too. So the deal you're referring to, yeah, you're right. It, it, it doesn't make sense at a certain level. Uh, um, maybe somebody can get there. Great. But uh, I need when I make a call on those deals, I, it's very important to me that people know that um, that I'm not just uh, uh, throwing things out there, right? If I call you an off-market deal um, that uh, I think is interesting at a certain point, I'm going to tell you. And uh, that way you know that I'm not wasting your time. You can spend time on it. And that something entered the phase where it actually price there was a loan prepayment that we didn't know about, which changed everything. And I agree with them. I'm going to be honest about it. And uh, yeah, that's probably where to underwrite this weight. It's season. Um, but I appreciate you jumping I, I, I on wouldn't, I wouldn't ever mention the name of that particular deal, but it's just more the, you know, the seller was at a certain expectation and you guys as brokers, you play that both sides where you have to sometimes maybe um, bring the seller's expectation back 
back to reality. Uh, and we've been on other deals in San Antonio where they wanted X, but they're only going to get Y. And, the, and that's what the market was giving the feedback on, right? And that's your job as the broker to sort of, you know, toe the line between the sellers and the buyers and saying, well, look, I've got, look, I've got five offers here. And it's, 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 you know, X amount of dollars off where you want to be. That's what the market's willing to pay. <laughs> and so, you know, I've had conversations with, with, both your your team and, and and Andrew and I have had conversations about buying off market deals can sometimes be not the best because you may overpay for what the market's willing to pay, and particularly if you're under if you're a newbie syndicator and your underwriting's not polished, you may overpay and you know, oh I got an off market deal but you've overpaid by you know ten thousand dollars a door. Um, so like having an on-market deal, at least you, and you win it, you're like, well, yeah, 20 other blokes or 10 other blokes were ready and girls and blokes, whatever, were willing to pay what I was willing to pay. So we're, we're, we paid market for it. So um, anyway, look, I, I really want to be respectful of your time, mate. So I could keep talking to you for hours. But um, at the end of every show, I like to get into the top five investing tips. Ready to do it? Let's do it. Mate, what is the number one habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Number one habit? Yep, daily habit. Um, number one habit. So it would be um, small disciplines for sure. Uh, starts in the morning, ends at night. Uh, you practice it every day, it leads to much bigger things. Awesome. Just little, those little stepping stones right towards the big goals. Instead of, instead of making huge strides, it's uh, two baby steps forward every single day. I think, I think that's really awesome. 100%. Makes the larger ones much easier. <laughs> Uh, what is, who's been the most influential person in your career to date? Yes, yeah, so I would, I would say my dad, uh, not about it just because he knows me very well and he's in business. Um, and so I can bounce off uh, him knowing my personality and him having experience in sales too, uh, to have that, uh, seasoned mentorship. I've used it in every, uh, different level of business. I'll go to him on biggest decisions and just have some opinion I can trust. It's been huge. So yeah, I would say my dad for sure. Awesome. Also, my, I, I'm also the same. My dad was a big influence in my life. Um, what's the most influential tool in your business, whether it be software or hardware related? Software or hardware? Yep. Either or, doesn't matter. What's that? Either or, it doesn't matter. Um, so, biggest tool, I, mean, I got to, I don't know if this is software or hardware, but team, uh, my team. And so, our marketing team, the analysts, I mean, those are significant tools. They use many different um, programs for that, but they're the ones that, um, are, I mean, they're the oil of the machine, no doubt about it. We are, can only do so much and to have a team such as the three marketing, uh, individuals in our, our team. And they're absolutely phenomenal. We have three analysts. They're absolutely phenomenal. And without them, we do probably 10% of what we're able to. I mean, it's really remarkable the team behind us. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Um, what's in, in one sentence, what has been the biggest failure from, what has been the biggest failure in your career and what did you learn from that failure? Uh, so fail often and fail every day. Um, and so there isn't, I, I was thinking about this question a lot. There isn't a, a big failure I've had. One was Ray Newmark didn't hire me four years ago and that was the greatest thing that ever happened. Um, and so failing, uh, often failing every day, doing things under uncomfortable is something that it's actually a goal of mine to do every day. Um, and so even as big or small, they're all worth, uh, something so much better and you learn from it because you get back up and get better. And so I uh, love to fail every day. There's been a lot of big ones, but as long as I'm continuing to fail and learn, uh, that's, that's where I want to be. Awesome. Mate, last question. Where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Um, obviously you don't want people 
calling you, blowing up your phone and saying, give me an off-market deal. But where if they want to uh, foster a relationship, where, where can they go? Absolutely. And I'd love to, you know, it's just more talking, being a resource um, and developing that relationship. That's, that's the, the end game for sure. Um, so www.aranewmark.com uh, is our direct website. Um, james.young at ngkf.com is my direct email. Um, happy to talk to anybody from a market level to deal perspective to just uh, get to know somebody. So always welcome that. And uh, that's kind of how we, we got to this point. So Awesome. Well, mate, I want to thank you so much for taking some time out of your day. Uh, some of the things that I learned from today's show was really um, your love for learning and, and failing fast, I think is really important. And your, what I enjoyed at the beginning of the conversation was your ability to identify um, your shortcomings and then and working on those shortcomings in order to learn a system to, to, to help you be successful. I think that's really, really important. Uh, and then in terms of, you know, we went into the markets uh, of Austin and San Antonio and how to value, you know, going in cap rates versus maybe year two or year three um, cap rates versus where the, the true growth is, um, understanding the supply versus demand, which was really important. And then in terms of, you know, figuring out how to do broker relationships, it's, it's valuing the relationship with you and not just calling up and thinking that it's a transactional sort of thing and hey, you, you've got deals to sell, you know, give me an off-market deal and you don't know who the hell this person is on the other end. So um, uh, did I leave anything out? Uh, no, no, I think that's covered. I mean, again, it's relationship business. Uh, we love to serve as a resource. We love working with you guys, um, helping whatever we can. And so it's just developing that trust and that uh, fun of it. And it just becomes fun when you work with people that you like and you execute deals together. I mean, that's, that's the goal. And so that's why I just I value the relationship component so much um, because it, it's it truly a fruitful um, way to do things and it, it's rewarding uh, very rewarding to really develop that and keep it going many years rewarding and fun right so mm -hmm. <laughs> well mate again thank you so much for joining me on the show today uh, provide some incredible cracking advice for my listeners enjoy the rest of your week and we'll catch up soon thank you appreciate the opportunity and this was fun thanks Reed. Well, there you have it. Another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from James. Um, all today's show notes will be up on my website at readgoosens.com. Remember to click on the podcast tab. If you have any questions for James, please reach out. He is a wealth of resource um, for any newbie syndicators looking to get started in the industry. Uh, I want to thank you all again for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ because that's what we're all about here on this show. And we're going to do it all again next week. So be bold, be brave, and go give life. Thank you.